Amen. It's so good to be together at this new year to remember the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has come to make all things new, to die in our place, and to rise again from the dead so that we might have eternal life and might be risen again, both to new spiritual life and one day to new physical life. If you have a copy of God's Word, find the book of Acts. We're going to be doing a little New Year's look at just some big themes in the book of Acts. And I want to set it up this way. Uh, Peter Greer is the CEO of Hope International, a Christian uh, economic development organization. They help uh, impoverished countries through economic development lift people out of poverty. And he wrote a book called Mission Drift. And there's a quote in this book that caught my attention this week. It says, the quote says this, leaders often first ask what, then move to how, and finally transition to why. But great innovators start with why. The ordering really matters. Everything flows from why. Not only does it motivate others to join you, it also guides what you do, and often more important, what you don't do. I think that wisdom is so relevant for businesses, for our careers, but friends, it's also relevant in our homes and especially in our churches. We've got to understand the why, not just the what and the how. And I'm afraid so often as churches, we get caught up doing good things with good motives, but things that maybe don't align with the why of what the church exists to do. And by doing so, we'll often lose the unique contribution and the unique mission that God has given to the local church. And I want us in this new year not to lose the why, not to experience mission drift. As we think about this, what would we think that the mission of the church is? And where would we find its mission statement? Fortunately, God hasn't left it up to our imagination to think about what the church exists for. He's given us his marching orders in many places in his word. You can go look later today at the end of each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His followers record various versions of the Great Commission, of what the church exists to do. But we find another version of the Great Commission, and we see believers embodying this mission in the book of Acts. And I want Acts to help us answer the question, what is our why, or what is the mission of the church? Why does the church exist? And I believe Acts is a unique place to answer this question. First, we've got to understand Acts is written by a guy named Luke, and Luke was a physician. But when he writes the book of Acts, he sort of takes his physician hat off and becomes an investigative journalist. The Gospel of Luke, which Luke wrote, is full of, it's a compilation of interviews and, and, and various stories that he heard put together into one narrative story. This is the reason, for instance, that Luke has a longer birth account. It's the reason that Luke is the gospel you read at Christmas when you were reading the birth account, because he likely went and interviewed Mary and said, what was it like to give birth to Jesus? And so he put that account into his gospel. 
And he addresses his gospel to a guy named Theophilus, who was likely a Roman official. I think it's probably true that Theophilus was probably one of the judges at the Apostle Paul's trial when the Apostle Paul was standing uh, for penalty of, of death. That was likely the judge. And Luke was trying to explain first who this Jesus was that Paul preached. And then he writes Acts to explain what in the world Paul and all the apostles are doing. And the first few verses of the book of Acts actually serve as a great summary of the book of Luke. Look at Acts chapter 1. Verse 1, we see this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he basically gives a summary of Luke and says, hey, I gave you a full account of the fact that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and then he walked around after his resurrection for 40 days to give testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive. This wasn't something of their imagination. This was something for investigation. And so if you're investigating Jesus this morning, I'd encourage you to look to the book of Luke as a great place to start as a piece of history given to you to record the greatest act of history in the world, that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. That's why Luke wrote his gospel. But Luke's investigation didn't end with the gospel. He wrote the book of Acts to compile together eyewitness testimony, including Luke's own experience traveling with Paul and the apostles. You'll see in your Bible, it's probably titled the Acts of the Apostles. And it certainly is, but a, a more accurate title might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit through his apostles. Because the main character in the book of Acts is neither Peter, nor Paul, nor Luke, but it is the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 1 brings us to the expectation of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. And while staying with them, he, being Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus says, Wait in Jerusalem, and I will give you the promised Spirit. And that's exactly what happens. The story continues. Verse 6. So when they came together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Friends, the apostles were like many of us. They were concerned about the future. Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? When are you going to bring about all of the Old Testament promises? What is the future going to look like, Jesus? And yet Jesus' response is, you don't need to worry about any of that. I'll take care of it. He says, what you need to focus on is the present. Don't be so consumed with the future, but receive my power in the present. Look at verse 8. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here it is, the Great Commission in Acts, and he says, rather than worrying about the restoration of Israel or what the future may bring, he says, receive the Spirit and go and establish my kingdom in every corner of the earth. And this verse actually is a whole summary of what the book of Acts is going to be about. If you were to look over just one chapter in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost occurs and the Spirit falls down on the church in power and the church is born. Believers from that moment on are witnesses. The Greek word for witnesses is where we get our word for martyr. And then they are his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And if you were to read through the book of Acts, chapter 1 to 8, they do their ministry in Jerusalem. Beginning in chapter 8, they expand their ministry into Judea and Samaria. In chapter 13 of Acts, Paul and his companions are sent into the nearby nations and to the ends of the earth. But as we come to the book of Acts... We need to recognize this isn't just a story about what happened to the apostles, friends. It is a story that we find ourselves in as well. It is part one of the story of our church and the story of us. Because, friends, this is in many ways our family history as the family of God. And I'm afraid that we're tempted to hear the words of Acts 1-8 about power and being a witness and spreading the word and to respond just as those original apostles did. Look at verse 9. Look how they respond to this. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. One, let's give them benefit of the doubt. Jesus has just ascended up. I'd probably be sort of in awe, too, if somebody in front of me was just taken up into heaven. But they continue to have their eyes locked on the amazing thing they saw and forgot the command that Jesus just said. And I believe we are tempted to stay looking up rather than getting to work by the power of God. We often can be more consumed about when Jesus is returning than to recognize that Jesus is still in the business of saving. And over the next few weeks, I hope the book of Acts will serve as a fresh wind in the sails of our church and fresh fire in our hearts because Acts 1.8 is for us. It is the marching orders for our church, just as it was for the first followers of Jesus. It is the mission of the church, and that's the mission of our church. And so we have three points that I want us to see all out of Acts 1-8 this morning. That the church first relies on the Spirit of Christ. I love how he starts by telling us, before he tells us what to do, he says, here is what you need 
in order to do the job that I am giving you to do. And he says, before, because Jesus couldn't be bodily with all of us at the same time, he sent the Spirit to dwell inside of us wherever we go. Consider the wonder of this. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God dwells inside you. If you are in Jesus, God has taken up residence inside of you. And throughout the gospel and here in Acts, it speaks of the Holy Spirit as a promise. And that's not to say that the Spirit's entirely new, right? You can go back and read the opening verses of Genesis and you see the Spirit hovering over the waters Right, You see the Spirit descending on the kings and prophets of Israel, and, but also leaving the kings and prophets of Israel. You see him uh, being with them, but never fully indwelling them. But Jesus promises his followers that those who follow him will be filled and indwelt with the Spirit. Let me just show you a few passages. The prophet Ezekiel says this, He says, I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. In other words, he says, in Jesus, you receive a new spirit and a new heart that enables you to obey God's word with a new power that you didn't have before. So often, we boil Christianity down to just say a prayer after a guy, nod your head, maybe go to church every once in a while, and you're going to go to heaven. It will be okay. But friends, that is not what God would have us understand about being a Christian. Being a follower of Jesus means that our lives have been changed. And if there has not been a transformation or a change in your life, if a new spirit hasn't been given within you, it's, it's a, a great time to ask, have we even met Jesus and encountered him? Because he promises power. He promises new life. He promises a new heart because in Jesus, we have something even better than the disciples had. Prior to him pouring out the Spirit, the God has given us power and the Holy Spirit has come to dwell with us. Look what the Apostle John tells us in John chapter 7. We read this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. Jesus loved to cause controversy at parties. And he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Then John gives this little author's note. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit had not yet been given to indwell and empower them because Jesus had not been ascended and hadn't been glorified yet. Jesus has come to dwell among us, and friends, he has left us, but he has not left us as orphans. He hasn't left us alone. He's given us something better and that the Holy Spirit indwells and lives within us. This is the promise he said to his disciples in John chapter 14. He says, it is better that I go away because then I'll send the Spirit into your life. 
to do what, what only the Spirit can do. Do we understand that we are filled with the Spirit of God? The power of God is available to us, and not just individually, but friends, I think it's even more important that we understand when we come together, a bunch of people and filled by the Spirit, something happens when Spirit-filled people get together and do Spirit-filled things. The very Spirit of Christ dwells within us. And I think there's two extremes we can go to. Some get a little nervous when we begin to talk about the Spirit because their experience of that is very uh, disorderly, very chaotic, and honestly not very God-glorifying. And I'll tell you, friends, the Spirit is a spirit of order and a spirit that brings attention to Christ. So if you see somebody claiming to do something by the Spirit and it's all about them and it's very disorderly, it's probably not the Holy Spirit that's working among them. But the other extreme, I think, is we often don't experience the power of the Spirit because... We don't pursue anything that requires his power. We don't war with sin in such a way that we have to yield our hearts and our, and our lives to him. We don't have to get uncomfortable and speak the gospel to somebody. So we don't need his power to help us when we're uncomfortable. We don't have to take steps of faith empowered by the Spirit. It's not that we test God It's not that we go, hey, God, I'm just going to go jump off this building and your spirit's going to help me. No, let me tell you, friends, if you do that, you will most likely meet God very quickly. But, friends, what God requires us will require his power to do. And what God expects, he has provided in the Holy Spirit. We need his power, and God has poured it in abundance upon his church. Power is available, but you've got to plug yourself into the outlets. You've got to pursue God in his word and in fellowship and in prayer. But do we live in such a way that his power isn't just nice to have, but is a necessity to have? Because the mission of God is far too big for anything else. I love that Acts 1-8 starts by saying, before you can accomplish this mission, church, you've got to have the right power. You've got to have the Holy Spirit among you. Friends, before we can accomplish all that God calls us to do, we need the power that God calls us to have. The good news is that what God expects, he has provided. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. We must rely on the Spirit of Christ to accomplish our mission. But what is that mission? Here's the second thing we need to see. The church relies on the Spirit of Christ. And second, the church proclaims the gospel of Christ. Friends, the church proclaims the gospel of Christ. Look at Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. It's interesting, the first thing that they do when the Spirit fills them, they don't build hospitals, though those are good things. They don't start nonprofit ministries to feed the hungry, though those are good things. Friends, the first thing that happens when the Spirit comes upon them is they proclaim the gospel of Jesus. When the Spirit pours out in Acts chapter 2, Peter gives an incredible sermon. Remember, not long before that, Peter was a fearful denier. Now he's turned bold proclaimer. 
And he tells them about the Old Testament significance of those who were speaking in tongues among them. And then he walks the listeners through the Old Testament to show them how Jesus fulfills it. And then he says this, Acts 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. When the Spirit fell, they proclaimed Christ and called people to respond, and the church grew. When will we understand that programs and events are great, but what the church exists for is the proclamation of the gospel and the building up of his people? So often we want to just fill our lives with sort of vague religious activities that ultimately do nothing to impact the kingdom. Oftentimes people will say, well, I really want to bring my kiddos to church because I want them to get the values. And let me tell you how that works. Because so often they want them to have the values, but they don't necessarily focus on them having the Jesus. But to get them the values, they've got to have the Jesus first. And friends, I'm afraid that God has called us to be a battleship against the kingdom of darkness, and we're content to be a cruise ship with various forms of religious entertainments. The church exists to be a community of gospel witnesses, to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to proclaim the good news that Jesus has died and been buried and risen again, and and to call every man, woman, and child to turn from their sins and to turn to Jesus and find everlasting life. And you may think, but pastor, I'm not Peter. And you're right. (laughs) You're not. I'm not. We don't have an apostle here today. But friends, we don't need apostles when we have their spirit-inspired words and we have their spirit-given power. Later on in Acts, after the martyrdom of a man named Stephen, we're going to read about Stephen in a few weeks, we read this. This is Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. Of course, we know Saul is going to play a big role later on in the book of Acts when he gets converted, and we know him as a guy named the Apostle Paul right? And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who scattered went about preaching the word. Did you notice who wasn't included there? It says, all except the apostles scattered and went about preaching the word. They didn't need Peter. They had the spirit of Christ. And friends, we have even more than they do. We have a full Bible 
and the fullness of the Spirit, we exist to be witnesses and to be proclaimers. All of us have been put here to be on mission for Christ. And friends, we live in a county, I know I've cited this stat to you, but I think we really need to feel it. 77% of our county is not in church on any given Sunday and likely then not connected to God during the week. Friends, certainly you know people who do not know the gospel of Jesus. Now be clear, you probably know people who share some of your values, who vote the way you do, and who view the world in many of the same ways you do, but that doesn't mean they know Christ. That doesn't mean that the power of the Spirit is at work in their lives. And we need to understand the mission, because I think so often the church has simplified it down to being witnesses means making converts. But friends, that's part of it. We want to see people's lives changed by the gospel. But rather, God would desire that churches live as witnesses in order that there might be more churches. This is part three that I want us to see. The church relies on the spirit of Christ. The church proclaims the gospel of Christ. And finally, third, the church plants churches of Christ everywhere. The church plants churches of Christ everywhere. Did you notice that he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Friends, that sounds like a busy weekend. How can we be all those places at once? Because here's the good news, friends. We don't have to be all those places at once because it only can happen when we multiply believers and multiply churches everywhere. The whole mission is local church-centered. Have you ever noticed what happens when someone believes in Jesus in the Bible? What happens to them? Let me show you this. Acts chapter 2, they had one of the best outreach events in the history of the church. They went from 120 to 3,000 overnight. And like, and like I said, as much as that would be great, your pastor would be definitely stressed out if we went to 3,000 people overnight, right? But they've got these 3,000 people, and look what happens. Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they, being the 3,000, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to breaking of bread and prayers. Notice the pattern. They believe, they're baptized, they're added to the number of the church, and then they devote themselves to becoming fully mature witnesses, fully mature disciples of Jesus. In Acts, we see Jesus' discipleship program that he initiated. And you know what? There's often people who want to say, well, Jesus didn't come to establish a church. And that's the first time I go, well, you've not read the Gospel of Matthew because Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would never stand against it. The local church is his idea. And we read at the end of the Gospel of Matthew these words from Jesus, the Great Commission, as we call it, in the church world. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to 
the end of the age. The central command is make disciples, modified by three verbs or three participles. He says, go, go and proclaim and be witnesses. Two, baptize those who believe. This is why, friends, Jesus would have known nothing of infant baptism. Baptize believers. And then he says, teach them to observe all that he has commanded. Friends, that takes a lot of time. That's not just a one and done. That means commitment. And that means a local church teaching and applying all of God's word to all of life. Friends, this means churches starting churches. Or as we take this mission and summarize and particularize it here, this is sort of how I view our mission here at Crossroads. It's this. We exist to take all of Christ to all of Katie's and to all the world. To take all of Christ, everything he's commanded, to every part of our county and to all the world. And Jesus promises to be with us as we pursue this mission, as we seek this mission. The Holy Spirit will be with us, but it's the mission of the church, and that will require the church to be the church. That's going to require local churches to be on, to be committed to their why. Because, friends, the world is far too big for it to be all about our body. Churches will have to multiply and work together to plant other churches. And some of you may think, Matt, we've got a church on every corner. Don't you get out? Haven't you seen how many churches? Trigg County, we, the only thing we have more of, the only thing that's second place underneath churches is dollar stores. <laughs> we've got a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of churches here. But let me tell you this. Have you ever done the, have you ever done the math? Let me do some math with you. Not hard math. We can do this. 14,000 people in the county. There's one estimate that there are 40 churches. That's crossing denominations. That's not even making a statement about whether they are healthy, thriving churches. But there are 40-ish churches in this county, again, across denominational lines. That means for our community to be totally churched, you would need to have 350 people in every single one of those churches on a Sunday morning. There is not a single church in this county that is one at 350 people, and two, we certainly don't have 40 of them at 350 people, and I could imagine our parking situation here if we had 350 people. Friends, do we still think there's enough churches Remember that this church is only here because another church started us. They gave of their time, their resources, their prayers, their people to start this church 20 years ago. They could have kept those folks there in Hoptown where they were and probably continued to grow where they were. But God wants us to do the same with partners around the world. This is why we send money to Ed Mean and to the great work he's doing in Peru, training leaders. We sponsor a a local guy who's in Peru who is training leaders and planting churches in jungles there. Friends, this is why we're beginning that partnership we've talked about with Real Life Fort Campbell, which is reaching 
military families on the base. Do you know military families are one of the most underserved group for churches to reach because they're often very transient and don't always hold down deep roots when they're there at base. But they're reaching them. I went to visit them this week and they're doing incredible work. This is why I think we need to pray about ways we can give and support work happening across North America for strategic gospel advance because we are filled with the Spirit, called to be witnesses and to proclaim the gospel of Christ and to plant churches of Christ everywhere. He says Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And I think that's a great way to think about mission. We've got our Jerusalem. That is Katie's. And I think even Fort Campbell is close enough to be in our Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria might be North America where I'm praying God would burden us for an area in this country that's that's more than a day's drive away where we can give ourselves with resources and mission teams in days ahead. And Peru, friends, that's the ends of the earth. That's a ways away. And the mission of Jesus... And that's the mission of our church is to take all of Christ to all of Cades and to all the world. To rely on the spirit of Christ, to proclaim the gospel of Christ, and to plant churches of Christ everywhere. And let me say this, this can't be done without you. Every person here has a role to play in the mission of God because God has called you to himself and filled you with his spirit for that purpose. Let me just say this. Maybe you're investigating Jesus. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Here's the great news. You can get on board with this too because this is why God created the whole universe. This is why he sent Jesus into the world that he might redeem a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, every background, every sort of sin and struggle. Friends, Jesus has come and lived a sinless life and died on the cross in your place and rose again from the dead so that you might, yes, receive eternal life and forgiveness of sins through faith, but so that you might become a witness and share with other beggars where they can find spiritual bread. The gospel doesn't end with us when we believe in it because God doesn't call you straight to heaven when you believe. At least for 99% of us, God doesn't call us straight to heaven when we believe. But rather, the gospel is meant to spread through us so that we might see heaven filled with every tribe, tongue, language, and people for the glory of God. Friends, that is our why. So often we're filled with what to do and how to do it. When's the last time we thought about why we as the people of God exist? And the church has left, and Christ has left his church with the Lord's Supper as a reminder of that mission and as nourishment for its accomplishment. It's here to keep us from mission drift, to remind us of what this is all about. It's about Jesus His broken body, symbolized by the bread, and his spilled blood, symbolized by the juice. The believers received the word, they were baptized, and then it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, which I take to mean the Lord's Supper, to the fellowship, and to prayers. This is God's plan for discipleship and for reaching the world. This is God's plan for you in this new year. And so may we find ourselves not with a case of mission drift, but found to be faithful witnesses to the mission 
of God. Let's prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper together. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the church, for the local church, both this one and others that you've started around the world that are proclaiming your gospel even today. And right now, I want to pray first for those today who may not know you, who may not know you, who may not have ever committed their life to you, Lord, they would see this Lord's Supper as an invitation to come to Jesus and find life, that they would just let the the cup and the, the bread pass and use this to hear an invitation that Jesus says, come and eat by faith, come and take of me and experience forgiveness of sin, eternal life and a new purpose, and a new why. But Lord, I also pray for those of us who are followers of you, Lord, that we would use this as a time to reorient our why, what we're living for, what we're doing with our life around you. So use your word today to help our church to multiply, both in Katie's and around the world. Use the giving we do toward missions, use the mission trips we organize, use all that we do in this new year by the power of your Spirit to bring glory to yourself. And Lord, do what only you can do through us and through the supper and through your word. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus established the Lord's Supper on the night before he was to be crucified and given it to his church as a reminder and a visual representation of us believing in him and taking his work upon ourselves. So the Apostle Paul wrote this as he was instructing the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my blood, my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, when you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A second sermon for our new year to remind us of our why. Not only why do we as a church exist, but why has God created us? Why did God send Jesus to redeem us? And what is the purpose that God has for you? That we might rely on his spirit, be witnesses to his gospel, and to together plant churches everywhere. And so God sends us out on this mission, empowered by his spirit. And so we head out and depart today, empowered by this benediction, this blessing from God's word. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.